Well, if you would please turn with me to our worship or our uh, scripture text this morning, it comes from Genesis chapter one, verses twenty-six through twenty-eight. Hear God's word to us. Then the Lord said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds and the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The word of the Lord. Pray with me. Lord, as we enter um, reflection on your word, we all enter this place in various states of security and insecurity. God, we pray that you would establish this this morning, establish our wobbly hearts in hope and love and security of knowing that we are created in your image, Lord. And part of what that means is that you are always relating to us. You are always present to us even when we don't realize it. In fact, you are more present to us than even we are to ourselves. And so, may we hear your voice and your spirit this morning speak to us. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. I wanted to take a few minutes at the beginning of this sermon to talk about this series. I didn't really last week. Something Beautiful for God is the name of the series. And we're taking a year to reflect on this big question of human sexuality. And I want to give you the argument up front. And the argument is this. As Christians, we'll never be able to make sense of the biblical understanding of sexuality, of commands about sex, if you do not understand that they're given, not simply because they're true, but because they're good and because they're beautiful. And so the purpose of this series is not to sort of look out at the world and point fingers and say, ha, you know, you need to stop doing those things, but the The purpose of this series is to argue about what they're for. What are all those prohibitions for? They're to protect something good and beautiful. And until we're able to have a sense of the beauty, the commandments will have no real power in our lives, and they won't compel us. And I want to return just to a couple principles um, that Jesus sort of laid out for us last week. In the sermon, kind of some ground rules for talking about sexuality and approaching this question of sexual ethics in the Bible. And that sermon's online. I encourage you to go back and listen to it. But Jesus, one of the principles that we discovered in that way he addressed this question of divorce and remarriage with the Pharisees is what I called the big story principle. And the Pharisees that came with him and they sort of tried to challenge him with this complicated uh, marriage divorce situation. And Jesus' response was not to allow them to set the terms of the debate, but to remind them of the bigger picture. To give them a sense of what is the whole, what is God doing in general. And 
I think this is a very important point because we, I think, oftentimes, if you grew up in the church, you know, you know basic Christian sexual ethics, right? Don't have sex outside of marriage. Marriage is between a man and a woman. I mean, these are pretty core, fundamental things. But for a lot of us, they're just like prohibitions. And I think we wrestle to have a sense of why, why, right? The why question is what we struggle with. And the reality is, is that you can't make sense of any moral principle in life, anything that has a moral weight, unless you understand why. What's the, what's the story that frames the command, in a sense? Because all moral principles, all kind of commands and ethics are rooted in a bigger story. And when the biblical understanding of sexuality becomes more and more implausible, it's because there's another story that has sort of inserted itself and that's taken dominance in our imagination. Um, let me offer just a very simple illustration of this. Uh, in the late 90s, a movie came out called uh, Pleasantville with uh, Reese Witherspoon and Tobey Maguire. And it's the story of these two teenage brother and sister. They get somehow sucked into the TV, into a kind of Leave it to Beaver show called Pleasantville back in the 1950s. It's all black and white, and it's prim and proper and very sanitized. The husband and wife sleep in separate beds. There's no sex. There's no anything enjoyable, but everything's really nice. And so these two um, brother and sister go back into this. They get trapped in this. But the whole story is kind of in the, in the film is in black and white. But the whole storyline is basically the, the means by which this little town of Pleasantville calls from black and white to color. And the leading edge of that, really, is people start having sex, which nobody apparently did. And when they have sex, eventually they start seeing the world in color. And they become color, but it's actually deeper than that. It's, it's, it's sort of like moving from a place of repression to enlightenment. At the end of the day, that was the message of the film, right? That, that the people in the town when they move from a kind of repressed understanding of themselves in these prim and proper roles to actually looking within to find out who they were, they came alive and to color, right? Now, think about, that's a storyline that gets told in a hundred different ways every day of our lives in advertisement and media and popular films. And, part, and an essential part of that storyline is this, is that sexuality, your experience of sex, your expression of sex, is central to your self-discovery, And so to be denied sexual expression, to be denied sexuality, is to be denied a self. That's the narrative of our culture when we think about sex. And that's why Christians have such a hard time talking about it. So that's why we're doing, that's why it takes a year. It's going to take a year to tell this story about what God created us to be. Which brings us to the second principle that Jesus introduces us to. The creation principle. Jesus, again, when this issue of marriage and divorce comes up, he directs our attention back to the original creation. And he says, he created them in the beginning, male and female. In other words, what he's doing is saying, like, we're not going to base our ethics, we're not going to come up with our understanding of sex and morality based on the brokenness of this world and the provisions around that brokenness. We start conversations that begin with what was God's original design and purpose. That's where you have to start. And so, this question, what is sexuality for, assumes another question behind it. And that's what I want to get at today. What are human beings for? You have to answer that question. What are human beings for? What's the purpose of being a human? And that brings us to this idea of the image of God. The first and central truth 
about human beings that you encounter in the Bible is this truth. You're created in the image of God. You're created in the image of God. Which means this. You're built for relationship with God. You are built for God. He built you for himself. That's what it means. It's the original relationship. And it's from this relationship and this understanding by which we can get security and significance in life. This is the first truth about us. The very first truth. So I want to explore this. and and, and, um, I'm actually going to have four sermons on the image of God over the next week. But I want to give you a big picture understanding of it this morning. And there's three things about this image that we learn from the text. We learn about the identity of the image, the dignity of the image, and the capacity of the image. Identity, dignity, and capacity. Now the first question I think we have to start with is this. What does it mean to be created in the image of God? What does that mean? Now this is very common language that I think we use and we throw around a lot. But what exactly are we saying? What exactly is Genesis saying when it says we are created in the image of God? Now, this has a very long history in the church, and um, in the early church especially, there was a tendency to think about the image of God as kind of like a, a special faculty in human nature. So you have theologians that would talk about the soul as being the image of God, or reason being the image of God, or, or mind. In other words, image of God was that which helped us understand how we are uniquely distinguished from creation. We're not just like all the animals. And, and it's almost like, sort of like a God faculty or capacity that we have. But this doesn't really quite capture what Genesis is after when it thinks about the image of God. For sure, there's a way that the image is what distinguishes us from the rest of creation. But the image of God is not a human nature sort of category as much as what I would say it's a human identity category. Let me explain what I mean by that. It's not a human. It's not. It's not like okay. As a human being, I have a. I have a heart that pumps blood. I have feet. I have you know a mind and, and all these things. It's not part of my physiology, spiritual physiology. The image of God is an identity thing. It has to do with relationship because relationship identity is about relationship, right? What is my relationship? What is my relationship to the world, to my gender, to my sexuality, to being American? Races. What, that, th- these are relationship questions, and that's what the image of God is about. It's about this original relationship. There is this original relationship that I was created from God. That that is the, the first truth, the central truth of my life, that I have been set in relationship with God. Let me draw your attention to, the, to our text. Um, verse 27. Then God said, let us make man in our own image after our likeness. And it's just that word man, English language does not have good gender neutral sort of categories for universal humanity, but Adam, it's, this is actually comprises male and female. Let us make humanity broadly, human beings or earthlings in our image, male and female. That, but I want to draw your attention to a couple things here. First of all, if you know the Genesis 1, God is saying, let there be light. Let there be heavens and earth. Let there be uh, fish and, and plants and dry ground. And then he gets to day six. And then it, stu- it, 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 it changes. It's not God says, let it happen. He says, let us. It turns into a dialogue. It turns into a dialogue. When, when God moves to create human beings, it's not simply let it happen. It's let us. There's an internal dialogue. It's almost like those of you who have um, children, most of you probably had a conversation at some point. 
let's have a baby. Remember that conversation? Now, some of the, sometimes you have a baby before you had the conversation, right? But, but oftentimes you have this conversation as husband and wife when you're thinking about kids. You talk about it. That's what's going on here. God is saying, let us make man in our own image. And notice the plural language there, let us. This drives commentators crazy. Because in this time and period, the Jewish people were fiercely monotheistic. They, the idea of a trinity would have been, I mean, this idea of three persons, that is not a, that's not a concept that, that was in, the, in this text. And, and commentators often try to explain it, saying, well, God is talking to like this heavenly host, like these heavenly beings. He's like this angelic, um, and talking with them about creating humanity. But the reality is that's actually not a good interpretation either. Because that statement is saying, presuming that the person that God is talking to is part of the creative process. There's a plurality there. And the early church fathers always saw this as a, the first evidence of the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. That there's this divine conversation happening. And it's out of this relationship of God with one himself that he creates human beings. And it's interesting as well that God says, let us create in its image, male and female. No other animal life is it distinguished by gender in this way. Male and female. There's an original pair. It's not a solitary human being. To be created in the image of God is to be set in this original relationship with a God who is not a solitary God, but a God who is a triune God. And think about how do we know God? You don't just know God in the abstract. You can say, well, God is holy. Well, God is just. God is merciful. You know, you can think kind of about abstract characters, but the reality is, is that the way you come to know God is you see justice, you see mercy, you see holiness. How? And the relationship we see in the New Testament between the Father and the Son. Jesus and the Father, right? There's that relationship, that, that relationship that Jesus has with the Father of disclosing who God is. And you only know yourselves in relationship. When you're falling in love and you're young, and you start getting really serious, and you're moving towards marriage, and you're really trying to merge your worlds together, what you discover is that you discover something about yourself that you didn't know. You start learning about yourself, and this happens in marriage. Things that you didn't know existed, things that probably didn't exist, but because now you have entered into a relationship with another human being at this intimate, deep level, things happen. You come out. And some of the best friendships and relationships in this world, that there's a way that people, that your relationship with certain people draws things out of you that nobody else can. Because, that, see, that's what identity is about. That's what we're talking about, is that to be created in the image of God is to have this identity in relationship to this original relationship that we are created for God. Our culture, I think, is marked by crisis when we comes to think about this issue of identity. And what does it mean to have an identity crisis? To have an identity crisis is either to have confusion around relationships or those relationships are broken. There was a New York Times uh, article that came out right at the first of the year with this title, The Year We Obsessed About Identity. It came out just this past, this past year, so it was t- reflecting on 2005. The Year We Obsessed About Identity and uh, the, the essay lists all these different big things. I'll name a couple of them. Bruce Jenner, or Caitlyn Jenner, right? So we're, we have this conversation about transgender, and what does it mean male and female, and gender reassignment. Rachel Dozenow, 
This is the woman who was the head of the NAACP, um, white woman, but kind of lived as if she was black and actually claimed to be black, but she was actually white. And you can add, let me add one more current one, Colin Kaepernick. We're having this debate, cultural debate, about what does it mean to be American? And here you have this, this football player from the San Francisco 49ers that, that will refuse us to stand during the national anthem. Why? Because of race and the way that America has treated black Americans, and he's making a statement. But why is this so, why is this so problematic? Because Ameri- football, which is the most American thing in the world, here you have this guy who's calling into a question America and our relationship to being Americans. And our ability to take pride in being an American. And he's doing it at the very center of that thing that we think of as America. That's, these, are, these are the identity questions, right? The sense of confusion. And think about the reaction to that grows out of the sense of, here, here you have this guy that is threatening my sense of pride and love of my country. See, that's what it means to have an identity crisis. This, this sense that everything is up in the air, right? That the self is infinitely malleable. I think of this self as like the plastic self. That's how we think about the self in our cultures, as a, as a plastic self. Another movie reference for you here. Um, in The Graduate, which is um, 1967, Dustin Hoffman. He plays this character, Benjamin um, Bratton, or Braddock. And uh, the storyline, even if you haven't seen the movie, you've, you know the storyline. He's a recent college graduate. He enters into an amorous affair with his dad's partner's wife, Mrs. Robinson, right? She could be his mother. And it's really a story about identity and trying to figure out who you are and a kind of collapse of hope in the American dream and disillusionment and all this stuff. But there's this great scene, there's this great line um, that I think captures the, the, at the heart of these questions where after a party or in the midst of a party after his graduation, um, one of his parents' friends, Mr. McGuire, comes up to him and he says, I want to talk to you, Benjamin, I want to talk to you about your future. I want to talk to you about your future. So he goes outside. He says, I have, I have one word. I have one word for you. Just one. Yes, sir. Are you listening? Yes. Plastics. Huh? Exactly how do you mean? Plastics. There's a great future in plastics. Think about it. Think about it. Plastics. And what he's saying is this, is that this, I mean, in that movie, if you understand that line, there's a sense of the plasticity of the self. That when you look at the future, you make yourself. The self is about invention. You make who you are. You are infinitely malleable. And you see this play out in this movie. And that's our understanding of the self in our culture, is that the plastic self, the self that you, you invent, you find, and the only thing that can tell you who you are is you, and you have to turn inside to find that. And those who say you are not you, you push out, right? There's a sacredness of the self. But here, friends, there's no future in plastics. I want you to know this. There's no future in plastics. There's no future in a plastic self. The plastic self is not a secure self. The plastic self is a self that needs to be constantly reinvented. The plastic self is a self without eternal significance. Your future is in the image of God. And that is to have a vertical self, one defined by relationship with God. St. Augustine, in the very first um, chapter of his great book, The Confessions, says this. He says, you are a great God 
O Lord, highly to be praised. Great is your power and your wisdom is immeasurable. Man, a little piece of your creation, desires to praise you. A human being bearing his mortality with him. Carrying with him the witness of his sin. Nevertheless, to praise you is the desire of man. A little piece of your creation. You stir man to take pleasure in praising you because you have created us for yourself. And our heart is restless until it rests in you. God created us for himself and our hearts are restless until they rest in him. That's the central truth of what it means to be created in the image of God. You don't find yourself by looking inward. You find yourself by looking upward. This is the first truth. And when you are understand this original relationship, then your life has dignity. (laughs) Then it has meaning and security. The second truth I want to draw your attention to is this, the dignity of the image. To be created in the image of God is to understand that my life has been invested with divine dignity, eternal significance, that nothing I could do can wreck it, or in, in, in the sense that I can harm myself, but I'm still created in God's image. Nobody can take that away from me. And this is the basis of, of the sacredness and the sanctity of life in the Christian tradition. Later on in Genesis 9, after the flood, after God has judged the earth because of its violence and its, its uh, immorality, God says to, um, to Noah this, and he, he, this is the first sort of you know, <clears throat> commandment related to um, sort of criminal uh, law, I guess you could say. And this is, what, this is what God says. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. For everyone, every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. And here's the phrase. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man his blood shall be shed. For God made man in his own image. See, the prohibition against murder is based on the fact that we are image bearers, all of us, and to kill another human being is an assault on God himself. And this is an incredible statement. And it's really the basis. When Christians, we think about the hum- dignity, the universal dignity of all people, whether you're a Christian or not, whether a race or, or sex, or any of those things, that all human beings are invested with dignity and sanctity, such that all life that's taken, even the worst criminals, is an affront to God. Rich, poor, male, female, black, white, disabled, sick, mentally incapacitated, all in the image of God, all have dignity. But we don't possess this dignity as a kind of special thing that we have on our own. And that's, I think, the key that you have to understand. This relationship, God is the one who is continually relating to us as creator. In... um, Chapter 2 we'll, of Genesis will reflect more on how God creates, but there's a scene where God creates Adam from the dust of the ground. And it says that he blew within him the breath of life. And that word blew is, is spirit, that God inspirited the man, his Holy Spirit, his creator spirit. That, friends, you and I exist because God continues to make us exist. Human beings are not like a wind-up, thing. Like, it's not as if God winds us up and then just lets us go. 
Or it's not like he just sticks some batteries in us and when the batteries run out, they run out. The way that God keeps you alive is that his creator spirit is constantly present to you, keeping you alive. And when he removes that spirit, your life is removed. There's this original relationship that all of us are related to God as creator, and he's always maintaining this relationship. And I think the truth of this, the consequences of this are, are, are huge. On the one hand, this image is ineradicable. Imagine I've, you know, if you're, you're clean, if you've ever sort of tried to refinish furniture or a table, and you're sort of, you're scraping the varnish, and you've got the stuff you throw on there, and you scrape it, and you're sanding it, and you're sanding it, and you're sanding it, and I had this table, and it's like, there was this level of varnish that just went so deep, and I just kept sanding it and sanding it. At a certain point, it was like creating this, this divot in the table, and I just had to give up. See, the image of God in your life is like that. You can try to sand it. You can put varnish on it. You can deny it. You can run with it. But you can never get it. It will never go away. But you can deface it. You can so scrub it in your life that it's hard to even recognize. See, the reality is this. When we move away from the dignity... See, there's only dignity in the relationship with God. The image only finds its flourishing in relationship to the original. And without correspondence to the original, we lose our dignity. We move away from dignity. I love the, um, Brian Stevenson, who is a lawyer, works a lot with juvenile offenders on death row, defending them. And he says that he comes to these young men, 12, 13, 14 years old, that, are, that have killed people, and they're on death row. And he says, one of the things he says to them is this. He says, you are more than the worst thing you've ever done. You are more than the worst thing you've ever done. Think about this. You can create, and you can commit, and you can do heinous things in your life to other people and to yourself. But you know what? You are still more than the worst thing you've ever done to another person or to yourself. That's the truth of the image of God in us. And our aunt experience of true dignity comes in our capacity, which is the third point I want to make, that, that the dignity of being image bearers of God is rooted in its capacity to show forth the glory of God in this life. To be created in the image of God is to be those who reflect the glory of God in the world. To be reflectors. Question and answer one from the Westminster Shorten Catechism. This is uh, something you, many of you have heard me say. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's the capacity of the image, is to glorify God. And I think, you know, you hear me say that, and some of you get it, but some of you think, okay, I mean, we have such a, we have no imagination for what it means to glorify God with our lives. We tend to think of it as that really spiritual person that's always saying, you know what, just bless the Lord. Well, I just give praise to Jesus. Right? We think of the person who glorifies God as a person who just talks a lot about what God is doing, right? A really spiritualized person. But it's actually so much deeper than that. It's so much deeper than that. It actually means that your very life becomes, um, you might think of it as this, as like a hot spot for the presence of God, for the light and luminosity of God in the world. And you think about Wi-Fi hotspots, you know, you're always 
you know, trying to get connected. And that's what it means to be a human being that reflects the glory of God, that in a sense your life is a hot spot. It's a place of connectivity between God and the rest of the world and creation. That there is this presence, there is this light, there is this luminosity in your life that saturates every corner and nook and cranny of God. That's what it means to have a capacity for God. To have a capacity to show forth His glory in this life. And it's interesting, I want to, you know, um, for our confession of sin, we reflected on the second commandment and the prohibition of images. Think about this. No images. The Bible permits no images of God, bar one. The image of God in human beings. See, there's nothing in creation... There is nothing in creation that can possibly capture who God is, except one, human beings. That human beings are, in a sense, icons. This is the word in the Greek the image gets translated to. That, that our lives are icons, in a sense. They're icons for the glory and the beauty and the goodness of God in the world. That's what God created us to be. See, in the ancient world, um, images, um, were, images of gods were in the temple, right? And the humans maintained these images, But in the biblical story, there's no temple. Creation is a temple. And the image is the human being. The image is the one that reflects God in creation. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, you have set in place, what is man? That you are mindful of him. And the son of man, that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Friends, the glory of God in this world, the presence of God in this world, was originally meant and still meant to be spread by us. Humanity, true humanity. I stole the title of this sermon series from a book by Malcolm Muggridge called Something Beautiful for God. And uh, it's, a, it's a short biography about Mother Teresa. And it's incredible to think that, I, I think that what Muggridge was saying is that here is a life that is beautiful. Here is a life that became beautiful for God. Friends, to be a saint, <laughs> to be a saint is to be something beautiful for God. We were talking about this when we were reflecting on the virtues of Christ through this spring and early summer. To be a saint, to be an image bearer, to be a person that reflects the glory of God is to be beautiful. And I think, think about Mother Teresa. Here's a woman likely that never experienced sex in her entire life. Single her entire life. And yet she's called Mother. She's called Mother. Why? Because she has more children than any of you and I will ever have. Because she gave her life to service, to love. And her life becomes this icon, this this place of glory in the presence of God in one of the worst places in the world. And she becomes this hot spot of the presence and the love of God. See, that's what it means to be a human being. It's not to look inside yourself and to figure yourself out and try to invent yourself. It's to look up and to be a reflector in the presence of God. Paul says, and John says, it's all through the New Testament, that Jesus Christ, he is the image of the invisible God. 
He is the true human being. He, 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 he embodies in bodily form and fullness who God is. And here's the thing about Jesus. <laughs> he is also not just the perfect image of God, but he's also a repair of broken images. He is a repair of broken images. So whatever the condition of your image is, it's brokenness. He can restore. He can repair. And you think about Jesus on the cross and the, the sort of gruesomeness of his death. And you think, here's a man who's being defaced. Here's a man who's losing his humanity. Here's a man who's losing it all. And yet God uses that to save. Friends, Jesus is a repair and a restorer of broken images. And someday, he will restore you. He is your future. He is what you will look like. He is our destiny. And someday we will be fully like him. Let's pray. Father, we ask you give us an imagination for what it means to be image bearers, those filled with glory of your presence. Give us imaginations to know what that looks like in our lives. It'll look different for every one of us in our various relationships. Help us to know what it means to find our security and our significance and the fact that you are our creator and that you love us and that you desire to redeem us and to restore us to the image we are created to be. And so wherever we find ourselves here this morning in various states of image needing repair, We know, Lord, that you meet us and you will restore us. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.